0: Good evening, tonight's reading is from Luke chapter 17 verses 11 to 19. Now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus travelled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, Go your faith has made you well. So I wonder who springs to
1: mind uh, if you're thinking of somebody who is wholehearted. Who do you think of when you think of somebody who is wholehearted? Earlier this week I uh, was watching the swimmer Adam Peaty, that's him there, uh, smash the world record in the 50 metres breaststroke. Not once, uh, but twice before he even got to the final in the World Aquatics Championships. I wonder if anybody else uh, saw it. He is an absolute machine. Um, His philosophy is all around not just defending the titles that he holds in the 50 metres breaststroke and the 100 metres breaststroke, but attacking them and absolutely smashing through them. He's amazing to watch, but also amazing to listen to about his philosophy around swimming. He's not just happy with what he's achieved already, uh, but he's set himself a target and he's called his target Project 56. Um, Because Adam Peaty wants to be the first swimmer to break the 57 second mark in the 100 meters breaststroke, and so he is after Project 56 and he's going after it with everything that he has and everything that he is. The trainer who's in charge of the British swimming performance says this about him. He's probably the hardest working athlete I have ever worked with. He spends hours in the gym, hours in the swimming pool trying to achieve his goal. Adam Peaty is someone who is wholeheartedly going after his goal. And this sort of wholehearted attitude and drive and focus is something that we often associate with elite athletes, don't we? But is wholeheartedness something we associate with ourselves as Christians? When we think of wholehearted Christians, We might think of a famous missionary, somebody like Jackie Pullinger and her work in Hong Kong, or Simon Gillibar out in Brundy, or maybe a full-time Christian worker you know, who's done some amazing things. Or maybe you think of a passionate preacher who is wholehearted in their faith, or spirit-filled worship leaders, people who have given themselves fully to God and made a difference in the world for him. But are these people the only ones who are truly wholehearted in their faith? Do you have to work full-time as a Christian uh, to be a wholehearted Christian? Or can we all here be wholehearted as followers of Jesus, whoever we are and whatever and wherever God has called us to be his disciples? God calls each one of us to nothing more and nothing less than a wholehearted, commitment to him. (coughs) Through the Gospels, Jesus time and again demands a wholehearted, whole life response to him. He asks his disciples, follow me, leave your work, leave your families, come and follow me, give your whole lives to following me. He challenges people with things like, you can't serve both God and money, you have to decide one or the other. Jesus challenges uh, the Pharisees and their distorted observance of the law. He he doesn't want their shallow, shallow, outward observance of rules and regulations uh, being seen to do the right thing. Jesus calls for genuine hearts of obedience to him. And then Jesus delights in true, wholehearted repentance. Just look at the example of Mary. She comes and she most treasured possession, that expensive perfume on Jesus' feet to show how much she loves him. And then the humility of the tax collector as he stands in the corner of the temple beating his breast and saying, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Following Jesus is about being wholehearted, it's about our wholehearted, whole life response to who he is. And what he's done for each one of us. In this passage uh, from Luke chapter 17 that Georgie just read for us we find that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. We read that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Have you ever thought about that? He's on his way to Jerusalem and what's gonna happen when he gets to Jerusalem? He's gonna be arrested, he's gonna be tried and he's gonna be crucified. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's walking a difficult road. And then he goes into this village and he meets ten men. And we hear that these ten men have leprosy. And they may well have had leprosy, but they may not have done because this word leprosy uh, was used to refer to any number of skin diseases that are around at the time. So it's unclear whether they had leprosy or just something similar to that. But whatever. What comes next shows us that not only are these 10 men suffering the pain and discomfort of this skin disease, but the disease itself has massive implications for their whole life. Because as Luke records, he says this, the men were stood at a distance. They stood at a distance. These 10 men are on the edge. They're away from the other people. They're the untouchables, they're the outcasts in their community. And that's because people were scared. They were scared of this disease that these men had. Uh, This disease uh, was, was something that people were scared of catching because they knew the implications of getting that disease. The implications meant disfigurement and illness, perhaps even death. And that fear would lead them to keep these men at a distance. They stood at a distance. And they would have had to live together in a community outside the village. But these men were also spiritual outcasts. As with many illnesses at the time, this skin disease was seen as something that people had as a curse from God. And so it was believed that because these men had this obvious skin disease, they were sinners. And so they had to be kept outside the social and the spiritual community. And because of all this, they were also barred from going through the Jewish purity rituals and so be accepted back into the community. These men were stood at a distance. They were afflicted, they were rejected, they were hopeless, they were lonely. And today we're perhaps shocked by the way that people like those ten lepers were treated. And yet, if we're honest, do we do something similar ourselves today? We just use different rules, different language to sanitise or to normalise the isolation or rejection of people who are seen as outcasts from the norm of society. Who are the people who are different from us? Who are the different people in a different social class? People who look different from us, who don't have the same worldview or belief system as us. Maybe we put the people out there that are unlike us, the people we can't handle, the people we don't have answers for, the refugee, the foreigner, people who threaten us and our stability or our sense of security. People who, for whatever reason, are different. And, or perhaps people who found themselves at the bottom of the heap in society. People who find the system has worked against them. People who find that they are hopeless. People who find themselves stood at a distance. It's the same. It's just different words, different language, different names. And so these ten men, in their desperation, they're stood on the edge and they're isolated and they're in pain. And one of them calls out, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. And Jesus, even as he walks his own difficult road, this road to Jerusalem, he doesn't walk past. He doesn't overwhelm by the immensity of their problem, ignore them like everyone else does. Jesus, Master, have pity on us, they cry. And Luke says this, Jesus saw them. He lifted his eyes up from his own path and Jesus saw them. He sees them. He doesn't see outcasts. He doesn't see inconveniences. He doesn't see problems or difficult people or overwhelming situations. He sees People And he sees them as they are. He sees individuals who have been created by his Heavenly Father. He sees people who have mothers and fathers, who maybe have their own children. He sees people who had friends or have friends that are isolated from them. He sees their pain and he sees their loneliness. And he sees people who need help, healing, restoration, people who need hope. Jesus saw them and he loves them. Because we can be in no doubt whatsoever that Jesus in his very person is wholehearted in his love for people. I wonder if some of us here feel like those lepers. We're stood on the edge this evening. And maybe you need to know tonight that Jesus sees you. He knows. He feels what you're feeling. He sees your pain or your sadness or your loneliness, your desperation. And he loves you, he loves you wholeheartedly because that's all he can do. And his love means that he will never leave you and he will never forsake you. (coughs) Jesus saw them. And so Jesus saw those 10 lepers And he tells them this, go and show yourself to the priest. Go and show yourself to the priest. Why would he do that? Why do they need to go to the priest that stood there in front of Jesus, for goodness sake? You know, why do they need to go to the man who works in the synagogue? Well, Jesus knows that the local priest was the only one who could declare that people were cleansed, that people really were free from these ailments, from such diseases. The priest was the only one who would enable them to re-enter the social and the spiritual community. And so these ten men set off to see the priest. And as they go, we read that they are healed, they're cleansed. Jesus just says those words, go and see the priest, and they are healed. Ten men who are restored, who are healed, who are saved and brought home. And yet... We then find out that only one man comes back to say thank you. Just one man. But that one man, he doesn't do it half-heartedly, but he comes back wholeheartedly praising Jesus and praising God with everything that he is. He says that he's praising God with a loud voice and then he just throws himself at Jesus' feet and he thanks him with everything that he is. And Jesus stands there and asks, Where are the other nine? What happened to them? We don't find out, but have you ever thought about it? Where are the other nine? What happened to them? Why didn't they come back to wholeheartedly give thanks to Jesus who had healed them and set them free and restored them? Where are the other nine? They've received the same healing as that man. They've witnessed the same power of God at work radically and powerfully in their lives, and yet nine don't come back. Why is that? You know, maybe they're scared and they don't want to be identified with Jesus, you know, who was already a marked man. He's already um, on his way to Jerusalem. They want to keep their distance. They want to keep him with the Pharisees or the local priest. Maybe that's the case. But I think that most probably they're so caught up in the moment, in their freedom, in the fact that they're healed, uh, in their restoration, in the excitement of what's just happened to them. It doesn't even occur to them to go back and say thank you to Jesus, the one who has just healed them. But instead, I imagine that they go running into the village uh, to be reunited with their families to say, look at us. Look at us, we've been living this isolated life on the edge for ages, and Jesus healed us, somebody healed us. Uh, They want to enjoy being back in their families that they've been isolated from for so long. And I wonder if we can identify with some of this in our own lives. I know I can. That moment where perhaps we've longed for something and prayed for it time and time again, and the prayer is eventually answered. In some way, and then we're, when it happens, we're so caught up in the moment that the last thing that occurs to us is that we need to go and say thank you to Jesus. That we need to throw ourselves at His feet in praise and thanksgiving. Maybe even just when we think about our own salvation, the fact that Jesus loved us and died for us on the cross, so that we can have life with Him forever. Do we really come in full, wholehearted praise and thanksgiving to him and say, thank you, God, thank you for saving me? And yet we see from Jesus' reaction here, as he stands with only the one of the ten healed men in front of him, that Jesus expects a response. He expects a wholehearted response. He's saying, where are they the nine? Why are you the only one here thanking me? A couple of uh, weeks ago I was on holiday with my family in France and we were lucky enough to be staying somewhere which had a swimming pool Now, for me to get into that swimming pool, it has to be about 30 degrees uh, in the air, about 25 degrees in the pool. And I'm one of those people who's really pathetic when it comes to entering water. I have to go through a process that takes about 10 minutes of gradual immersion into the pool uh, with lots of hilarious uh, squealing that goes on and my children just get really, really embarrassed. And eventually I'll get there and I'm able to swim. Unlike my youngest child, who some of you know uh, called Fidian, who from day one uh, until the last day of the holiday was absolutely wholehearted in his method of entry into the swimming pool. It went something like this. He would start about five meters away from the edge of the swimming pool. He'd sort of make sure everybody was watching. He'd stand there and like brace himself. And then he would stick his arm in the air and shout as loud as he could. And he is the loudest child I've ever come across. Why? I don't know. Anyway, but Aslan and Narnia, and then he'd run towards the pool, launch himself into the air and shout, "Cannonball!" And then go into the pool with a massive splash and come up with a huge smile on his face. Anyway, this was repeated approximately 20 times every day for 11 days, so it's etched on my memory forever. But we were in no doubt that Finny and Tolbert was wholehearted in his entry into that swimming pool, every day, multiple times a day. Wholehearted thanksgiving is not necessarily something that comes natural to all of us, is it? We love to have a good whinge and a moan, don't we? But it's a command that we're given in the New Testament. 1 Thessalonians five eighteen says this, in everything give thanks, because that is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Jesus wants a wholehearted response to him. In everything, give thanks. That means give thanks through the painful moments. Give thanks when God seems distant. Give thanks even when prayers aren't answered in the timescale or in the way that we want them to be. Give thanks in suffering, in darkness, in depression, Give thanks in all circumstances. And then in Ephesians, we hear that Paul says that the wholehearted, spirit-filled life uh, is one of praise and thanksgiving. Ephesians 5.20 says this, Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. In God's economy, thanksgiving isn't an optional extra. It's an essential part of spirit-filled, wholehearted living. In that moment of gratitude, of giving thanks, the healed leper is humbly acknowledging the power and the sovereignty of God over his life. As he gives thanks, he literally throws himself at Jesus' feet. He's physically demonstrating his relief, his thanksgiving, his complete submission to Jesus in that moment. He's saying, this is all due to you, Jesus. This is all about you. My life that I have now is because of you. I am not worthy, but you are. It's in this moment that we see the healed man's faith and gratitude go hand in hand. And when faith and gratitude are hand in hand, then thanksgiving overwhelms the circumstances of our life. With a thankful heart, you can say in the midst of anything, God, I do praise you. And that kind of attitude looks beyond the circumstances to the plans of God. It sees beyond the pain to the sovereignty of God. It remembers, as we read in Romans 8, 28, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purposes. An attitude of thankfulness enables (coughs) us to deal with those who wrong us. Saying with Joseph in Genesis 50, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Those who are thankful see the providential hand of God everywhere and say, God, I thank you in the peaceful times and in the hard times, the difficult job situation, that relationship issue, that illness, or that pain I'm going through, because I know. You will bring everything together for my good and for your glory. Faith and gratitude hand in hand. And then lastly, Jesus says to that healed leper, as he's lying with his thankful heart in front of Jesus, he says to him, get up and go. Your faith has made you well. Get up, get up. And that word, get up, is really interesting because in Greek it's really closely associated with the word resurrection, or the word for resurrection. And so by saying get up, Jesus is saying get up from your death, get up from your old life that you've now free from, get up because now you are alive, you've been given a resurrected life." Jesus is showing uh, this man that he has transformed his two-dimensional life that he was living as he stood at a distance into this four-dimensional life a whole-hearted, restored resurrected life and if you and I have received Jesus as our Lord and Saviour then new life has come to you and so we need to get up and we need to go out and live a life of thanksgiving,
0: a life wholeheartedly for and with Jesus.